Lord God, graciously open your word to our hearts as we seek to open our hearts to your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I have a bad habit of getting grumpy when I go shopping for clothes. It has been known to annoy my wife. I might walk into a shop and within seconds decide that there couldn't possibly be anything in the shop that I would want. I don't give it even half a chance. Or if I persist, perhaps with her encouragement, I finally get to that terrible place called the changing room, which, let's face it, is a real hassle. It's small, hot and stuffy, and having undressed and put the potential purchase on, very often the mirrors that surround you seem bizarrely not to be designed to flatter you, but to make you look as awful as possible. Why would they do that if they want you to buy the clothes? But maybe it's just me. Lent is a season of self-examination. And I'd like to use the analogy of Lent being an invitation to step into God's changing room and look in the mirror and see what needs to be changed. In chapter 2 of the letter of James, it's as though he invites us to step into a changing room and look at ourselves in all four mirrors to see if our faith is actually alive and visible in our lives. And then in chapter 3, which we heard earlier, it's as though the mirror zooms in on just one part of our body. You know, those mirrors that somehow manage to magnify the one part of you that you think is ugly. Not a problem I have, but perhaps some of you know what I mean. James zooms in on just one part of the body that he says is more crucial to our lives and more corrupt and potentially more evil and ugly and dangerous and destructive than all the others. We've heard the reading, so we know which part he's going to zoom in on. But imagine if you didn't. Imagine if in a totally different setting you had to say which part of the body is potentially the most sinful and evil and destructive. Perhaps we might imagine the changing room mirror zooming in uncomfortably below the waist. I mean, what? oh, after all, if every bit of human pain and suffering caused by unfaithfulness and lust was removed from the world, surely that's the part of the body that has most potential to become evil and perverted. Or maybe the hands, maybe the mirror will zoom in on hands. What if people never hit each other? if there was never any violence in homes or on streets or at war. World peace, we might choose the hands. If you ask James, he'd say, no, try again. It's the tongue. Of every part of the body, the one that most consistently is at the heart of pretty well everything that's wrong with our world, you'll find it's the tongue, it's words. And then he goes into a long and careful argument to show that the tongue is so, so much more powerful in its potential for evil than we usually realize. He shows that everyone messes up from time to time in what they say. Some people never get violent. Some people have complete control over their sex drive. 
But when it comes to our speech, everyone says words from time to time that they desperately wish they could take back. James says that actually if a person really has their tongue totally controlled so that they never get it wrong in what they say, they are in fact so self-controlled that they're perfect. And then he gives a few striking images for the power of the tongue. First, a horse. Back then, a horse was like the equivalent today of one of our powerful machines. But James says that big, powerful horse is controlled by a tiny bit in its mouth, directing it this way or that way. Just like you and I, no matter how big and powerful we may seem, so often it's our tongue, our little words that are actually setting the direction of our lives. He makes exactly the same point with the picture of a ship. A ship was the largest moving vehicle you could get. If you think about it today, it still is. Tankers, aircraft carriers are the biggest moving vehicles we have on the planet. But James says that huge vehicle is steered by a relatively small rudder. It was a brilliant picture because back then rudders were shaped just like a tongue. And then he shifts the picture and he talks about the tongue as being like a spark in a forest. That one tiny careless spark that can so easily cause a huge terrifying destructive fire. And he says that actually most, in fact, maybe all sin begins with a word, either spoken outwardly or perhaps spoken inwardly to ourselves, a spark. It's as though we're walking around with a huge box of matches, and every so often the urge takes us and we strike one and chuck it out. Canon Paul isn't here this afternoon. He was taking our Iranian service. Now, I'm not gossiping, but please pray for my colleague, Canon Paul. You know, I heard from someone who heard from someone else. He's been spending a lot of time with one of the young women in the cathedral congregation. I don't know who it is. I'm sure there's a good reason, but, you know, keep it to yourself, just like I have. You know, just, just so you'll pray for him. Because apparently it was the same at his last church. And someone said that Anne, Paul's wife and him, don't talk to each other except when they're in public. The match is struck and thrown out. Just to reassure you, Canon Paul isn't here, but I do have his permission to gossip malicious nonsense about him as a sermon illustration. Gossip. Just one example. What about all the others striking the match and throwing the spark out, criticism, backbiting, boasting, lies, flattery, rumors, insults, slurs, exaggeration, it goes on. Are any of us totally innocent? James says we're in a mess because none of us can tame our tongues. He says the tongue is restless and the word he uses was actually a word they used to describe evil demonic powers, the forces of darkness. So he's giving us this sense, it's as if the spark we are talking about comes 
from the evil of hell itself, that our words can be a place where hell breaks into our world and sets fire to things. Have you ever been aware of that happening? Where in the heat of the moment, you just gave in to the urge and said the wrong thing, and maybe even it felt good as you said it, but all it brought was pain and death rather than love and life. James talks about how in church one moment we're praising God and then the next or the next day we're cursing people, pulling them down. Cursing here just means speaking evil of them. One minute we're praising God and the next speaking evil of people made in God's image. In those days it was common for a king or an emperor to set up a statue of themselves in all the cities that they ruled over. And if you insulted or cursed the statue, you were treated as if you had insulted or cursed the emperor to his face. Because the statue was an image of the emperor. That's the image in James's mind as he writes, so that in the same way, when we insult or speak evil of a person made in God's image, it's as though we are insulting God to his face. Speaking praise for God and evil of others is simple hypocrisy, says James. And then the last two of his pictures to fully drive home the point. In Israel, a dry, hot country, in the Jordan Valley, as you are walking long distances, feeling hot, feeling thirsty, you'd sometimes see a stream running down the east side of a valley wall, maybe a few miles walk away, and you'd head off towards it, desperately hoping that when you got there, you could have a cool drink of fresh water, water from a fresh spring to give life and strength back to you. But sometimes that wasn't the case. Sometimes you'd make your long detour, only to discover that that spring was full of salt and minerals, completely undrinkable like seawater. But one thing was absolutely sure, you never ever get both good, fresh, life-giving water and stale, dead, salt water flowing from the same spring. He uses crops to make the same point. You never get an olive tree that grows grapes. So once again, it's just plain hypocrisy. If one minute we're praising God and the next speaking evil of others. None of us should be feeling comfortable by this point in James's argument. Our tongues can be instruments of evil itself, causing pain and destruction all around us, and we can't control them. No matter how hard we try, we never seem to be able fully to tame them ourselves. So what are we going to do? James invites us, in a manner of speaking, to step into the changing room, God's changing room, where we open up to his grace and his power to change us day by day. James talks about living by the humility that comes from God's wisdom, being transformed by God's presence that brings his power and wisdom into our lives so that by his grace we change into humble people. That humility is like Jesus, who even when he was being viciously, falsely accused and insulted, didn't need to speak out to defend himself. 
Jesus, who is the truth. Jesus, who is the eternal word made flesh, the wisdom of God. So as we continue this path through Lent, let's step into the changing room. Let's look courageously at those parts of ourselves we're not terribly proud of and allow the power of his spirit, his grace, to work within us anew. Let's pray. The psalmists pray, set a guard, O Lord, on my mouth, and keep a door of my lips. And elsewhere, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, save us from foolish and hurtful talk, from uttering lies or making false promises. Give us the courage to say what we mean, and the honesty to mean what we say. May our speech be seasoned with grace, that it may be loving and life-giving to those who hear it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.